Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, Tracy, I'm very lucky because one of my awesome friends brought me a bunch of garden plants recently. Yeah. Um, who is a person you also know. And I love this because she uh, participates in a community garden, so she gets all kinds of good stuff through, like, seedling swaps and whatnot. So I got a nice variety. I got some peppers and tomatoes and squash and some basil from her. And I had already started a bunch of mint in my house uh, so that I can always have ready mojitos on hand. (laughs) Um, And all of this kind of needed to be moved into planters. And so I finally started doing that. And as I was, uh, you know, doing this... I had one of those very simple but profound moments where I found myself thinking about all of the places and efforts and plants that have contributed over time to me on my back deck digging soil out of my compost bins to make new homes for all these plants. Might sound a little self-important, but really it was more like I'm part of a bigger picture and it, I don't know, it just hit me in that moment. Sure. So this got me thinking about gardening and how it is really, gardening more than almost any other sort of obvious thing is a living history that connects us to all places and people through time. Because, right, like people 5,000 years ago did not have a local home improvement store uh, or a big box store where they could go get fertilizer and weed management in abundance from an entire aisle of shelves of these kinds of things. Yet, lots of plants that are useful or delightful to humans have survived and even thrived for thousands of years so that we can continue to plant their descendants today in our home gardens. This is where my head's at. So uh, we have talked about various specific gardening topics before, right? Like we've talked about roses and we've talked about historical gardens at the History Center and some others, and some of those will come up here. But I wanted to take a look at how gardening developed in North America to contextualize some of those other topics. Um, But of course, that also does involve things that happened around the globe prior to colonization. So to level set, this is definitely one, it's more North American than anything else. It's definitely more focused on the idea of a garden than landscaping or growing crops, though there's some overlap because some of those learnings uh, kind of contribute to gardening. So we won't, for example, be talking like about when various cereal grains were grown in various historical cultures. And we also won't have a whole lot of discussion of East Asian gardening. That is a really amazing history all its own that I would love to tackle one day, but it is way outside the scope of this. We do talk about some influences on Western gardening from East Asia, though. But first, we're going to talk about North America before colonists, and then some of the history that led up to Europeans bringing their own gardening ideas to North America, and then how gardening developed and shifted once the colonies were established and beyond, leading up more or less to present day. This is, as you might imagine, a lot, so it is by no means comprehensive. We're really just trying to hit a few of the highlights that connect gardening traditions of today to history. So all gardening starts in the same place. Humans didn't invent plants out of thin air, and the earliest precursors to gardening started historically with somebody nurturing a useful plant species in that plant's natural habitat and then starting to plant them more deliberately closer to where they lived or traveled so that they would have easier and faster access to these plants. So, of course, long before Europeans ever showed up on the North American continent, 
there were people here cultivating plants. And most of this might fall more closely under crops than gardening. We're talking about things like gourds and potatoes and maize that were being grown. Uh, According to records in what's modern-day Mexico as far back as 5500 BCE in some cases. And for a lot of cultures that were living in the Americas, there was already this deep understanding of how cultivated growing impacted the land. So a lot of the early practices here were focused on sustainability. That is not a new concept. And these techniques were then later picked up by gardeners who moved to North America from Europe. So, for example, companion planting was practiced by the Wampanoag people as well as others. And that has come to be known as the Three Sisters Technique. And that is when three different crops were grown together that all supported each other in the soil. So one configuration is growing corn or maize along with pole beans and squash all together in the same tract. The corn offers climbing space for the beans. The beans enrich the soil with nitrogen that they pull from the air. And the squash provides a soil-protective ground cover and a pest deterrent that helps to keep the smaller plants healthy. Um, I actually saw a little article about a similar idea in Gardens Today that was combining sunflowers with other plants to grow them together in a way that naturally supported each other. Yeah, and there are even some people who have taken kind of this three sisters technique. It still gets used today, and they add in a flower component. So there are a lot of ways that this has been developed, but it really is um, kind of a wonderfully balanced idea. And another technique that was well-established by indigenous populations in North America was what we would now call no-till gardening. So in this case, instead of digging up the soil to plant seeds, the soil is undisturbed in the seeding phase. Seeds are laid down, and then a fresh layer of compost is added on top of them. And as a consequence, the healthy soil that's been developed remains intact, and it actually prolongs its viability for future planting. Other techniques were also part of indigenous gardening practices for centuries before they were adopted by colonists who arrived on the continent. So terrace gardening to manage erosion and inconsistent rain cycles, irrigating using catchments and water runoff reservoirs, directing the water flow with dugout canals or indentations in the earth, seed-saving, naturally fertilizing with things like fish or remnant vegetation, among others. These, These kinds of things come up a lot on our Unearthed episodes. We're always finding new evidence of new things that people were doing to cultivate plants. Yeah, I also love how a lot of these things get discussed when you're talking about modern gardening, and it's like, this isn't a new idea. No. (laughs) People have been doing it this whole time. This is not new in the least. Uh, And in addition to the indigenous gardening practices that colonists encountered and learned when they arrived in North America, Europeans also brought with them gardening knowledge that had roots all the way back in Mesopotamia, so that includes Babylon and Persia, as well as ancient Egypt. So we know that there were a variety of garden styles throughout Mesopotamia. The hanging gardens of Babylon are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, after all, although their date usually puts them at around 600 BCE as an origin point. And obviously there was plant cultivation in the area way before that. 
Yeah, orchard gardens were cultivated, as well as temple gardens designed to honor deities. And there were also gardens that were cultivated in courtyards within palaces. And we know all this based on archaeological findings over the years, but we really don't have a lot of specifics on how most of these gardens were designed. We just have sort of snippets of information, like seeing the use of trees and straight lines right next to walls. Gardens were created in Egypt as far back as 10,000 BCE, and included the three types of gardens that we just mentioned. In Egyptian gardens, sycamores, date palms, and fir trees were used to form grand gardens that were pretty architectural in their design. They were highly ordered and precise in the placement of the flora. Both Mesopotamian and Egyptian gardens were often intended to offer an escape from the heat and the dryness of the desert, so kind of a respite of shade and and beauty. Yeah, it's like, uh, I I would like to build a small oasis within the walls of my compound. That sounds great to me. Uh, By 6,000 BCE, gardens had started to appear in Greece. And in addition to those three types of gardens that were used in prior locations that we mentioned, the common architecture of Greece may have given rise to small personal gardens. So uh, most families lived in these sort of small homes, but they had courtyards. And while there isn't certain evidence in the matter, it has been theorized that one of the functions of those courtyards was as a place for small gardening projects, in addition to common other uses, like as a common living area, area and as a place to cook. Ancient Rome is where we start seeing more recorded information about gardens and their uses. The atriums found in the townhomes of Rome's wealthy inhabitants would have multiple garden areas. A peristyle court often contained a family shrine, and the gardens surrounding that would have been ornamental. The Hortus Courtyard was used for cultivating fresh fruits and vegetables, and the Atrium Courtyard would have been where rainwater was collected in cisterns and may have also included some ornamental plants. In villas outside of the heavily populated areas, courtyard gardens were also popular and also a lot grander in scale. As Roman military efforts moved into Europe over time, so did their gardening aesthetics. So when Roman officials, for example, would conquer a place and then move into that conquered territory, they would then have homes built that included all of the comforts of home as they knew it, including gardens. Another carrier of the garden tradition uh, from Western Asia into Europe was the spread of Islam that started in the 8th century when Islamic forces attacked the Iberian Peninsula. Just as was the case with Roman officials, the conquering Muslim leaders set up new homes in Spain, and they also had gardens planted. By the Middle Ages, gardens were spread throughout Europe in castles, monasteries, manor houses, and private homes of the upper middle class, as well as smaller subsistence gardens for the lower classes. One of the common features of castles during this time is something I absolutely love. It's an herber. That's a small, private pleasure garden used almost as an outdoor room. There were also food gardens associated with most castles. Often those were outside of the castle walls to include things like fruit orchards and large-scale vegetable gardens. Monastery gardens were filled with produce plants as well as medicinal herbs, and this ties into our recent episode when we talked about barber surgeons and the ways that monks had at one point functioned in a more medical caregiver role. In just a moment, we're going to talk about the first known English-language text on gardening, and it is pretty delightful. But before we get to that, we will take a quick sponsor break. (music) 
Somewhere in the early to mid-1400s, the earliest English-language gardening book was written. Actual estimated dates for it are kind of all over the place, but regardless of the exact origin date, the feat of gardening attributed to author John Gardner offers a massive amount of information for horticulturists to draw from. Trinity College, Cambridge has the only known copy. It is 88 pages long, although the last dozen of those pages are very damaged. We don't know who John Gardner was, although there has been plenty of speculation. Interestingly, a good bit of this gardening manual was written in verse and in a commentary on the book written in 1893 by an honorable Alicia M. Tisson Amherst, John Gardner's writing in gardening is critiqued as follows. Quote, John Gardner must certainly have been a practical gardener, as the poem is a series of most sensible and reasonable instructions for growing fruits, herbs, and flowers. And his work is singularly free from the superstitious beliefs in astrology and the extravagant fancies and experiments in grafting and rearing plants, especially fruit trees, so prevalent in the writings of this period. That he was not skilled in making verses can be seen by his poem. The lines frequently fail to scan, and many of the rhymes are very imperfect. (laughs) I love that criticism. So to give you a taste, Gardner's verse begins with, and this is kind of amended from its, its original language to be a little easier to understand, but for the most part, it's all there. How so well a gardener be, here he may both hear and see, every time of the year and of the month, and how the craft shall be done. In what manner he shall delve and set, both in drought and in wet, how he shall his seeds sow, of every month he must know, both of warts and of leek, onions and of garlic, parsley, clary, and also sage, and all other herbage. I want to say garlic as garlic from now on. I know, me too. (laughs) So here's part of the section on grafting. Thou must graft apple and pear from the month of September to April. With a saw thou shalt the tree cut, and with a knife smooth make it, clean between the stock of the tree, wherein that thy graft shall be. Make the cutting of thy graft between the new and the old staff, so that it be made to life as the bake and the edge of a knife. A wedge thou set in the midst of the tree that every side from other flee till it be opened wide wherein the graft shall be laid. I find this whole thing incredibly charming. Uh, The oldest known botanical garden is the Botanical Garden of Pisa that was established at the University of Pisa to house Luca Ghini of Imola's Herbarium. Close on its heels, another botanical garden was founded in 1545 at Padua University. The Orto Botanico was established to give the medical school at Padua ready access to medicinal plants. The botanical garden Padua still exists today as a teaching garden. It has an estimated 6,000 plants in its collection, and it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's open to the public. You'll sometimes see the Padua Garden listed as the oldest. This is because the Pisa Botanical Garden has moved twice, and in relocating, it forfeited that oldest title. Yeah, both sometimes get get called the oldest. Uh, Nobody seems too spun up about it. Uh, During the early Renaissance in Europe, gardens expanded in size as the next step to the grandeur 
of expansive formal gardens. So during the High Renaissance was when gardens really started to become more highly formalized, with those intentions of creating huge visual spectacles that highlighted the grand homes of families that could afford extravagant landscaping. So these geometric designs were a display of both wealth and taste. While we're not talking about Asia's gardening history so much in this episode, we do need to note that it was certainly influencing the Western world's gardening aesthetics. A 1685 essay written by Sir William Temple really extolled the virtues of the East Asian gardening style, which was more in tune with nature and not about forcing rigidity onto it. At the same time that André Lenotre was lauded for his manicured masterpieces at Versailles, Temple's writing espoused the wisdom of a softer design for gardens. And then over time, some designers did try to incorporate what they thought East Asian gardens might look like in their own plots. Over time, English gardens in particular adopted touches that referenced Chinese and Japanese gardens, Although, again, they were really usually referencing their imagined versions of those cultures. Yeah, it was one of those uh, instances where these people had never seen gardens in China or Japan, but they were like, I know, a pagoda. (laughs) So they would just drop it in their garden. Um, Kind of a messy, messy way to do it. And this is where we're actually going to transition back to North America. So... When Spanish ships landed at St. Augustine, Florida, starting in 1565, they brought with them both plants that were native to Spain and others that they had collected on their journey, which they then cultivated in this new place. And this was the first of many integrations of non-native plant life with plants that naturally grew in the area. The gardens and crops of the early pilgrims in North America were widely known to have been successful thanks to knowledge they got from the Wampanoag, And the difference between the soil of New England and the soil of England is really significant. And while many of these people had plenty of gardening and farming knowledge from back in England, it really did not transfer across the Atlantic in a way that could have sustained them. We mentioned the Three Sisters method earlier, and this is where that technique started to be incorporated by European colonists. Incidentally, the success of these crops not only fed the early arrivals in the colonies, but it also enabled them to ferment their own alcohol, something that was culturally important to English and other European colonists from the very beginning. As the colonies continued to expand, of course, so did their horticulture. In the Jamestown colony of Virginia, seeds were used to start gardens that would mirror some of the items that colonists had been accustomed to in their own home gardens back in England. And they also integrated plants in their gardens based on their learnings from the Native American population. So that included large-scale growings of things like tobacco and corn, as well as growing squash and native bean varieties. One of the earliest laws in the colonies that involved plants was passed in 1639 in the Jamestown settlement, and that required anyone who had a certain acreage to plant an orchard and also to have a fenced garden. A popular garden for North American colonists was the so-called dooryard garden. That means like a small patch of plants right outside the home's front doorway, and that offered vegetables and herbs for the household. This idea continued well beyond this into the 1800s as people started to migrate west. Dooryard gardens gave way to what are called kitchen gardens. Those are the same basic idea, but sometimes they tended to be a bit larger than a dooryard garden to include more food plants because 
as we got further and further away from established places, there were, of course, fewer options to procure produce elsewhere. You kind of had to do it all yourself. Uh, Fruit trees were sometimes included in these gardens along with the vegetables and herbs. By the 1800s, as these settlements turned into towns, residents were less immediately dependent on growing their own food. And so some of the gardens shifted their makeup to included things that were planted just because they were pretty. And this also marks the rise in the U.S. of an entire industry of plant breeders who could specialize in growing and reproducing hardy plants with disease and pest resistance. And then they could ship seeds or plants to growers around the expanding country. If you recall our episode on Joel Roberts' poinsett, this was around the time that he was sending samples of what would come to be known poinsettias, as well as other plants from Mexico to the U.S. And after that point, poinsettias exploded in popularity. At this point, it wasn't just wealthy people like Poinsett who were interested in plants as a hobby. Leisure gardening became popular in the U.S. as people all across the socioeconomic spectrum started growing plants for ornamental use, and flowers started to be cultivated by home gardeners even more than fruits or vegetables. Coming up, we will talk about the rise of botanical gardens and seed companies in North America, and we'll dive into that after a pause for a word from some of the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. The colonies got their first botanical garden in 1728 in Philadelphia. Its founder was Quaker John Bartram, a friend of Benjamin Franklin, and Bartram used his contacts in London to trade seeds back and forth. So North American plants were being exported to Europe at the same time European plants were being sent to the colonies. Bartram is credited with sending dozens of plant species to Europe for the first time and was granted the title of Royal Botanist by King George III. Bartram's garden still exists, and it is open to the public. Flushing, New York, was home to the first commercial nursery in the colonies. That was opened by Robert Prince in 1737. That nursery, like Bartram's business, imported and exported plants and seeds, both with Europe and with Australia, and also offered ornamentals and grafted fruit trees for sale. Prince's expansive cherry orchard was the source of 10,000 trees worth of barrel-making wood during the Revolutionary War. Prince's nursery was seen as so valuable during this conflict between the colonies and England that British General Lord Howe commanded that it be protected. The Prince nursery operated for 130 years. As we know, throughout colonization in early U.S. history, there have been enslaved people going all the way back to the 1600s. And gardening was part of the enslaved population's life. This has come up on the show before a couple times, and I wanted to make sure we touched on it again. Uh, For example, when we had journalist and cookbook author Anne Byrne on to talk about her historical baking books, particularly the one on cookies, American Cookie, she mentioned Benny seeds that traveled to North America in the pockets of enslaved people. And in Holly's interview with Sarah Roberts of the Atlanta History Center, she talked about the enslaved people's garden that's part of Smith Farm at the History Center and how it recreates the subsistence gardening that was often a necessity for enslaved people to ensure that their food supply was supplemented with fresh produce and herbs. 
To reiterate what Sarah told us in that interview, allowing the enslaved workforce to maintain their own small crops was not a magnanimous move on the part of enslavers. This was a means to ensure that the enslaved people retained a connection to place and minimize the likelihood that they would try to escape. Additionally, these gardens not only yielded food for the enslaved community, but in cases of particularly successful yields, it sometimes created a means to earn a little bit of money by selling off the surplus. This is one of those things that that uh, can come across, as you just noted, as as being magnanimous, but it was also putting some of the onus on enslaved people to provide their own food for themselves. So it's like yep. layers. Yeah. And also knowing like, hey, your beans are going to be ready in two months, so you're probably going to be, I don't have to worry about you trying to get away in the next two months. You know this is important. Yeah. Throughout the history of gardening in North America, enslaved labor was used for most of the grand landscapes and many of the less grand that were created by colonists and early Americans. This came up in our White House two-parter, but it really applies to most of the historical homes that we think of when we think of the founders and very wealthy European colonists. In the late 1700s, dedicated seed stores began to open around the United States. The D. Landreth Seed Company opened in Philadelphia in 1784 and eventually had George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as customers. Jefferson also patronized another Philadelphia seed company that was run by Bernard McMahon. That one opened in 1796. The first seed pamphlet was created by G. Thornburn & Sons Seed and Florist Shop that operated in New York City starting in 1802. As plants and seeds marketed to individual gardeners continued to grow in popularity in the U.S., so did large-scale gardens and landscapes. In 1820, the U.S. Botanic Garden was founded in Washington, D.C. by an act of Congress, At the same time, garden cemeteries started to be popular, and large parks in the formal European style, like Central Park and Prospect Parks in Manhattan and Brooklyn, all of those started to develop. Yeah, you see how just, like, the idea of gardens started to gain more and more value as a a culturally important part of uh, U.S. identity. And for the home gardener, there were also just more possibilities. For one, people started moving out of the most dense areas of cities and to less crowded areas where they had more of their own green space to cultivate. It also became quite popular in the mid-1800s for wealthy families that lived in the city to purchase country homes. So even though they were city dwellers, they had a place to garden or, in many cases, have their enslaved workforce or their staff do the gardening for them. (laughs) In 1860, natural pesticides made from things like dried and powdered chrysanthemums started to be offered to home growers to control insects in the garden. Chrysanthemums contain a naturally occurring chemical compound known as pyrethrin, and that impacts the insect nervous system, causing paralysis and then death. So small-scale gardeners had more success at raising plants, and that bolstered interest in gardening even more. In the 1870s, two things happened that gave the home gardener in the U.S. both more information and more to work with when planning their plots of flowers and produce. First, the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition of 1876 featured a massive horticultural hall that was inspired by Paxton's Crystal Palace from the 1851 London Exposition. That hall contained exhibit after exhibit of plants and tools and demonstrations in gardening that were meant to appeal both to professional gardeners and to home amateurs. 
In the wake of the U.S. Civil War, people were really eager for the escape of the Expo. It's estimated that 100,000 people attended the opening speech that was given by President Ulysses S. Grant, and that 10 million visitors attended the Expo over the course of its six-month run. The other development of the late 1870s was another seed business. This one has a name that folks will probably be familiar with, even if you only have the most casual knowledge of gardening. And its founder had attended the expo and was just beyond inspired. W. Atlee Burpee was only 18 when he went to this expo and was expected to continue on with the family poultry and livestock business. He was so deeply interested in gardening and particularly breeding plants. He had studied plant genetics alongside animal genetics as he prepared for his career. He had probably read Gregor Mendel's experiments with plant hybrids and had done some experimenting on his own. So in 1878, he founded the W. Atlee Burpee Company, but at the time it focused at first on poultry and then other livestock. But within just a few years, Burpee had added seeds to his offerings, and soon he was shipping seeds and plants throughout the Northeast and the Plain States, and he had to hustle to keep up with demand. Burpee also made a trip to Europe every year to tour the continent and meet with other horticulturalists, and he would use his notes from these trips, along with the stock that he acquired along the way, to write each Burpee catalog. Of course, Burpee seeds are still easy to find today. You can find them in home and garden centers, big box stores. You can buy them online. They're kind of like the, I would guess, the most common name in seeds. As all these seed companies were established and demand for seeds grew, people started to see a need for a trade organization for seedsmen. Uh, And the result was the formation of the American Seed Trade Association in 1883. That still exists. It's one of the oldest trade organizations in the country. It was founded to address issues like tariffs and establish guidelines for claims against seed performance. Today, the ASTA states its mission is, quote, to be an effective voice of action in all matters concerning the development, marketing, and movement of seed, associated products and services throughout the world. ASTA promotes the development of better seed to produce better crops for a better quality of life. The first women's garden club in the U.S. formed in 1891, not far from me. That's in Athens, Georgia. And soon, garden clubs like it had popped up throughout the country. And in 1913, several of those garden clubs joined together in Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania, to form the Garden Club of America. Gardeners Elizabeth Martin and Ernestine Goodman had founded the Garden Club of Philadelphia in the early 1900s, but their move to form this larger coalition enabled deeper engagement on issues beyond merely cultivating one's own personal garden. And the group's ideals have remained more or less the same, to stimulate the knowledge and love of gardening among amateurs, to share the advantages of association through conference and correspondence in this country and abroad, to aid in the protection of native plants and birds, and to encourage civic planting. Today, the GCA offers merit-based scholarships in a variety of horticulturally related fields, promotes conservation, and traces the history of gardens throughout the U.S., among other efforts. As the 19th century came to a close, the placement of the home garden shifted. Up to this point, outside the front door had continued to be the usual place that a person would probably find a home garden. But a new concept came into favor that replaced the dooryard garden, and that was the lawn. 
The lawn fell in line with a Victorian trend of formality, an aesthetic that quickly traveled across the Atlantic to the U.S. And while there were still ornamentals grown in the front yard at this time, the structured nature of lawn landscaping for homes meant that a lot of herb and vegetable gardening, as well as some flower gardening, just kind of shifted around to the back or the side of the house. In 1902, a school garden initiative was started by Fanny Griscom Parsons, Initially launched on a plot in Manhattan's Hell's Kitchen neighborhood, the project assigned small garden plots to the students. Each student was given a 4 by 8 plot to grow an assortment of vegetables. The idea was that the hundreds of city-dwelling students who participated would learn to work together and become connected to nature while also beautifying a portion of the city. This program expanded and moved to a space in DeWitt Park, And Parsons started lecturing on school gardens to teachers. She actually became director of the Bureau of School Farms in 1910, and that was a program that lasted until the early 1930s. During World War I, many of these school gardens were dedicated exclusively to growing vegetables to help the war effort. Promotional posters read, Join the United States School Garden Army. Beyond schools, Americans were encouraged to grow gardens to supplement their rationed allotment of food. At the beginning of the 20th century, a trend which has recently cycled back into favor began in the form of more natural gardens. The structure and formality that had really dominated the late 1800s started to fall out of favor, and they were replaced with efforts to grow more native plants in pleasing arrangements and a desire to soften the hard lines to match the natural form of the surrounding landscape. In 1922, the American Horticultural Society was started. Similar to how the Garden Club of America formed, this nonprofit group came together to combine the existing American Horticultural Society, the National Horticultural Society, and the American Horticultural Council. The AHS continues today with a mission to, quote, share with all Americans the critical role of plants, gardens, and green spaces in creating healthy, livable communities and a sustainable planet. During World War II, Americans were once again encouraged to grow vitamins at your kitchen door by planting victory gardens. The White House had its own victory garden, and the idea became symbolic of the American spirit. And as we've mentioned on the show before, many Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in internment camps by the U.S. as part of Executive Order 9066 grew their own gardens at the camps. The post-war suburb boom saw another surge in personal gardens. The yard space that a lot of people had for the first time was used largely for ornamental purposes. It was connected to this growing idea of leisure living. But then in the second half of the 20th century, activism around conservation led to new initiatives and trends in gardening as the focus for a lot of plant enthusiasts turned away from just cultivating private gardens and toward projects that enriched their communities and reclaimed green spaces in densely populated areas. This is also an era when gardening television shows, which have existed from just about the beginning of broadcast TV, really took off in a big way. If you watch HDTV, you can thank earlier shows like The Victory Garden, which started running on PBS in the mid-1970s and was definitely part of my childhood. Mine too, and they I haven't watched it, but I, I believe they have relaunched a new version of it, so I'm curious about it. Today, gardening seems to be more popular and more varied than ever. Part of this, of course, is because everyone was stuck at home for the last year uh, and suddenly was like, I could grow some stuff. <laughs> 
And while some people tend to specialize plants in their greenhouses, others help manage wild growth gardens, and yet others create their own topiaries in their yards. One of our neighbors has gotten very into topiaries during the pandemic. Uh, Some people grow squash in raised beds or grow small container gardens, or there are plenty of people that just have a lamp system to grow fresh herbs in their kitchen. There is a way for almost anyone who wants to garden to engage with it at whatever level they're comfortable with. Uh, And all of these possibilities are really part of this long history. A lot of the produce varieties that we grow today have been grown in some form or another for centuries or even millennia. As just one example, onions have been grown for at least 5,000 years, although whether they originated in the area that's modern-day Pakistan or in Central Asia, that's a matter of debate. Onions were buried with the pharaohs of Egypt, and they appear in medical texts in India going back to the 6th century. And as we talked about at length in our episode on roses, if you're growing ornamental flowers, you're benefiting from centuries of work to create hardy, beautiful plants. So when you're working on your own garden or your community garden or whatever, you are a link in this ongoing historical chain of people growing stuff. Yes, I love it. That's why I love gardening so much. Um, And please, please let my tomatoes work this year. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) I have a really, uh, I need to get an expert involved because I have a history of um, having some very near misses and plant failures. We can talk about it during the behind the scenes on Friday. But uh, that is our our very brief. I mean, there's so much detail you could dive into on any one of these. And some of the people we mentioned could certainly be episodes of their own. Uh, but I hope if anybody is out there gardening that they they think about how they're part of this bigger picture of gardening and how it's uh, uh, one of the few things that connects humans across all cultures uh, in a really obvious and tangible way in our day-to-day lives. Okay, I have listener mail. This is a twofer because it covers both our recent episode on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge and our older episode on Cannery Row. Uh, This is from our listener, Chelsea, uh, who writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, evidently I got distracted partway through telling you my life story after your Cannery Row episode, so I'll just add on my Tacoma Narrows Bridge commentary here and actually send it this time. My husband was stationed at Naval Base Kitsap in 2015 to 2018, and I got really involved volunteering at the Kitsap Humane Society. I walked and fostered dogs, I did dishes and laundry, and drove for the transfer team. We transferred in animals from overcrowded shelters all over, Hawaii, Texas, Guam, California, and even Israel once, and found them homes in the area. I was always amused by the looks on the faces of the Kauai dogs that jumped out of the van to find a few inches of snow. This meant that about once a week for more than two years, I drove across Sturdy Gertie, that podcast was the first time I heard that nickname, to pick animals up from SeaTac Airport in the middle of the night. I can confirm that the winds through the Narrows are still intense. I don't think I ever felt the bridge move, but there were definitely times it took effort to stay in my lane. Feeling the broadside of the behemoth of a cargo van getting smacked by wind will certainly help keep you awake. I figured you guys could use Tacoma Narrow's dog stories that ended better than poor Tubby's. I miss getting to work with all the dogs since we've moved and the local shelter can't have volunteers because of the pandemic, but I make up for it by loving our foster fail pit mix, Melina. Picks attached. That dog is painfully cute. Uh, She also had included her original message, which was about Cannery Row. 
Uh, and I'll I'll, re- I'll pick up part of that. She said, I grew up in Monterey, exactly a mile up the hill from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Here are a series of anecdotes and fun facts from my hometown. Local lore said the streets I walked to get to the elementary school bus was named for women who had worked in Flora Woods, uh, Bordello, <laughs> Alice, Grace, etc. I have no idea if this is true, and Google was no help in confirming. Uh, when my brother was in second grade, his class went on a field trip to the aquarium and ate lunch in the outdoor classroom. A seagull grabbed his sandwich out of his hand and then immediately dropped it into the ocean. He cried and his teacher had to share her lunch with him. I have had the seagull theft situation and it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> they will, um, I mean, I, I've i said before that I grew up on the Florida Gulf Coast when I was little. And I remember I had a bag of Doritos once and a flock of seagulls literally came and were just like that. That bag is ours, ma'am. Um, and the, I was terrified. It was a lot of birds. Anyway, uh, Chelsea also mentions that there was a Nickelodeon game show on in the 90s that frequently gave a trip to the aquarium as its big prize. And I spent way too much time worrying that if I went on the show and won, it would not be a very good prize for me, given that it wouldn't be a vacation and we already had year passes to get in. Did the showrunners base the prizes off of the hometowns of the contestants? I never even tried to get on the show, but the logistics of prize selection worried me. Kids are weird. Uh, that is a very cute. There are other stories that she includes, but I wanted to uh, uh, include those. They're so sweet. Uh, she also mentions that if you do visit Monterey, uh, bring a jacket. A major driver of summer sweatshirt sales at the Cannery Row shops is tourists who come expecting California summer weather and get stuck in the June gloom. Uh, right, you, it gets very cold at times. But uh, thank you so much, Chelsea. Also, uh, I really do love those pictures of your dog. That is a cute, cute baby, and I understand why that was a foster fail. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History, and you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.